0: Welcome again, everybody. Sort of an emotional roller coaster. Uh, If you don't know, my name is Casey, and I am one of the pastors here at Collective Church. It's an honor to be one of the pastors here. And uh, just so you know, today, as if you haven't guessed it already, is not a typical Sunday. It's also not an easy day, but it is a necessary day. Again, Lorenzo hit it, but I think it's worth going over again. Today as a nation, we have what's called National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And this whole time is marked in humanity's history book for all of time. And it's the anniversary of when Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade lost the fight. And he lost the fight 7-2 to two in 1973. Now, if you know the history or not, Jane Roe, being a very young woman, who was, um, she was raped. She became pregnant and then she began fighting for an abortion, which then for her in her case was not legal, but it was the case which started the avalanche of abortion legalization that so many of us are familiar with today. And it's a thick and heavy moment in our history, ushering all of us to this very moment, to today, to the present. It seems only safe to assume that some here will be tempted. And so hear me out. Some here are going to be tempted to leave in our time together. Uh, But I would ask very humbly that you will stay to the end to hear today in its fullest. Because this topic, this topic really is the issue of our generation. It's the issue of our generation that touches all. I had a conversation last week with a young lady who was supposed to be aborted. She told it very clearly, I was to be aborted. So, again, I mean, is it fair to say that we've all been touched by the reality of abortion at some point in our lives? Our mothers may have had abortions, our sisters, our friends, our daughters, our spouses, our girlfriends, our coworkers. Maybe even some of you have had pregnancy scares and considered it. Maybe even some of you men have pondered it. We have to see abortion touches everyone, not just women. It's everywhere. Even men here uh, here today again who who have pushed or manipulated their partners to get an abortion who may now uh, walk in shame or regret. And even men who have been victimized by their partner's choice for abortion. It's a shadow that runs across us all but more than anything we are not ignorant to the fact that some in here could have had an abortion again Lorenzo hit it but it's worth repeating so we want to start today and as i speak to everyone but especially if that's you again we extend grace and compassion and love you will hear no judgment you will hear no shame from us so you know this that this church These people, myself, I'm not going to even pretend, we're not going to pretend that we can even begin to know the depths of your circumstance or life. I'm not going to pretend that I can even comprehend the complexity of your past. Even possibly the pain or hopelessness that you may carry even in this moment. And to that, we see as a church as similar in our brokenness. You see, we have a church named Collective Church. Lorenzo already hit it. It means we're collectively doing mission together. Yes, that's true. But we also are collectively a community in desperate need of forgiveness and restoration and hope. So I say this, please feel safe here. Please. No stones will be cast by any of us. So for any of us crushed by abortion in any walk of life, know this. Please know this, as we start this talk, there is no situation and there is no past action and there is no secret that is ever hopeless. Ever. No secret or hidden situation or past action is ever hopeless in Jesus Christ. Book of Romans in the New Testament says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, today is about hope. Not condemnation, not shame or guilt. It's about hope. Hope and the only real type of steel, real solid hope that is found in Jesus. And so today as we discuss the ugliness and the darkness of abortion, what shines and glows and warms us is then the hope of Jesus Christ. See, the bitterness of this cultural issue and the sweetness of the cross now for all of us to collectively to be fixed on that hope, we must know the truth and the reality of the issue at hand. I want our church to be equipped. I want us to be equipped and educated with its effect on men and on women and especially on the unborn. So today we're going to talk very frankly. We're going to use big boy and big girl terms. We're going to talk very honestly. See, not only from the pulpit. See, I don't want want us to be a church that skirts the issue, not only from the pulpit, but from the different places of our lives. Now, some of you could be wondering, and some could be thinking, what what rights does a church or some religious organization have to step onto political territory? To trespass and cross the barbed wire fence onto science? And philosophy and politics. Well, here's why, friends. I'm here today to remind us that this is the issue of our generation. And an issue that transcends politics and science. And it is a spiritual reckoning. And it is the social justice issue of our day. See, long before the Supreme Court showed up, and long after they're gone, this is and will always be an issue about God. And about the gospel. And about the Creator and creation. It's as author and theologian R.C. Sproul just says so blatantly: says, with abortion, we have the most volatile ethical, social, moral issue in the history of the United States. It is not just here, it's in the whole world. This is seen as the lowest point of corruption and of our cultural disintegration that I can imagine. And like you say, what are my great-grandchildren going to say about my generation that let this happen? This is a point and issue that the church and Christians cannot ignore. Now hear me, we're far from some political church. I'm not up here saying, let's go rally. I'm not up here saying, let's protest and picket, bring violence. I'm not saying any of that. Today is an outcry for an awareness. Today is an outcry for education and for bur- uh, for a burden, and for intervention, divine intervention, and to discover today what has our intervention look like at a compassionate yet passionate level. To be very honest and vulnerable, I am absolutely embarrassed at myself. And I'm heartbroken as a pastor as I put this talk together this week about how, I, how little I actually knew about this, this Jupiter-sized issue. And I've been freaking out all stinking week, doing my darndest, not as a scientist. You do not want me as a biologist. Not as a politician. You do not want me, you know, in politics. But I've prepped our time today as a Bible teacher and as a Bible-believing church, to make sure that today has clarity and reason and biblical authority. For some of you who really do know this topic well, what you're going to hear today is not exhaustive, but I do hope it's helpful. So today we're looking into the face of abortion with compassion and conviction, and it comes by a way of understanding. Understanding what is abortion? What is the other names it's known by? What is its argument? What is the problem of abortion. Many argue that it's surgical contraception. Hear me out. Many argue that it's surgical contraception, but even there, we must, we must, we must be careful. We must. Many women's rights activists and pro-choice members hate that phrasing. It's an overgeneralization. And to be honest, I, I, I I totally get it. So we must choose our words carefully today. We will use the glossary that we're all probably most familiar of with this issue. Terms like pro-life and pro-choice. Those are not biblical terms, but familiar terms in this issue. So no matter what, especially today, words matter. To so many in our nation, as pro-choicers would say, uh, abortion is ending a pregnancy. Terminating a pregnancy. Or even harder to hear, it's the emptying of the contents of the uterus. By the way, if we haven't yet given the disclaimer, if there's kids in here, you may not want them here. Now, to draw an even more, just hopefully, neutral line so that they're here today, people trying to understand differing views, let's get to the basic of basics. What words does the Oxford English Dictionary use to define abortion? As the expulsion of removal from the womb of a developing embryo or fetus in the period before it's capable of independent survival. That at its core is the defining of a procedure where the unborn, where in which the unborn will stay unborn. Again, for Collective Church, for us it's necessary to know the stats, And the numbers and the figures. And I share it again for our awareness and for some of us, hear me, to wake us up. Now I know there isn't a talk or debate or a sermon on abortion without stats. And for some, if not all, that can feel very contrived. Leaning to one side or the other. So with that, I've retrieved my data from Guttmacher Institute. If you're familiar with the abortion discussion, you probably know that name. Gumacher Institute is a former research arm of Planned Parenthood. We're all very familiar, especially in the recent news, of who is Planned Parenthood. So the data I will be sharing is directly from their sources and their research. So Guttmacher Institute, they report that, oh, there are, um, that there are just over one million abortions that occur annually. Please hear me. That figure is not Globally. There's over 1 million abortions for the United States alone each and every year. That translates to about 20, 2,800 abortions uh, every day, even today, um, even in this moment. Now, can we just stop there for a moment? Uh, there are so many different types of abortions that make up this 1 million. There are so many different points at which an abortion may take place, different trimesters and whatnot. So this number is an umbrella purely stating that abortions took place. What it's not saying is that most of these abortions, year in and year out, happen after the 21-week mark. So behind me, you're going to see a picture of a baby at 20 weeks. If you're familiar with the 21-week mark... It means that the unborn have fingerprints, and they have functioning hearts, and brains, and livers, and kidneys. The majority of abortions happened after the 21-week mark. We didn't have 3D sonograms in 1973. Do you think and believe that if we had the same technology that we do now then, that the results in 1973 would be the same? I will never forget when my wife and I got Moses's, my nine-year-old son's 3D sonogram. We were freaking out. You could pick out his features. You could pick out his quirks. You could see his DNA. You could see his resemblance to my wife. He looks nothing like me. It was everything like my wife. From 1973, Roe versus Wade, since then to now, there is a strong estimation that both pro-choice and pro-life can agree on, that around 49 to 55 million babies have been aborted. That number only being a number of the record that we have, um, you know, the only record that we have of it. It doesn't tell us about illegal or, or hidden abortions. The Supreme Court itself has also stated that there have been well over, that's the quote, well over, the Supreme Court says, of 54 million abortions that have occurred since 1973. The Guttmacher Institute has tracked roughly around 49.3, it's very specific abortions, through 2008. See, 2008 being the last time they updated it with some real stats. So imagine how much higher we are since, since 2008. So let's make sure this sinks in. My brain works in comparisons. These numbers that I just rattled off, I hope they stuck, but hopefully this will help draw uh, more of a memory to them, a remembrance. What these numbers do is they tell us that that, that that 60 million mark, that 55 million mark, that is roughly double the population of California. That's the entire population of South Korea gone. It's almost three times the population of Australia. Now, hear me. Our generation has many tragic and dark issues to confront and find solutions for within our time. Racial tensions and division, corrupt law enforcement, sex trafficking, all the way to the threat of war. But hear me, what separates those From the abortion numbers that we just read, those mass numbers, that all of this, that abortion happens in the name of liberty. Under the banner of freedom and choice. For so many, the abortion divide comes down to life or liberty. Life or liberty. See, one is fighting for life and the other pro-choice is fighting for liberty. Gummacher again reveals to us that 50% of women who have had abortions have had a previous one. 30% of women by the age of 45 will have had an abortion. And the most common age of women to have an abortion is between the ages of 20 and 29. That, that should rattle us a little bit. That is the demographic of our church. This makes it all the more real. So with these kinds of facts, it's no wonder that this is the most frequently performed surgery on adults in America today. That being publicized by the National Service for Health out of Atlanta. But what's really the problem here? We've got the stats, we've got the figures, we know, we get it. What's the problem here? What is the abortion divide? Where does it start? See, if we could compress it down and down and down... To really the issue. We'd end up not with a scientific equation. Or some signed legislative bill. But a small. Very pivotal. Question. That very simply being. What is the unborn? What is the unborn? This question is the hinge upon which the heavy door of can we take its life. Rest upon. So. Can we destroy the unborn? My answer is yes. If. If the unborn isn't life. See, if the unborn doesn't possess personhood, uh, pro-life author Scott Klusendorf has blatantly again said, if the unborn are not human, killing them through elective abortion requires no, just, no more justification than having your tooth pulled. But, 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 if they're human and if there's a strand of personhood, that changes everything, does it not? So what is the unborn? Well, many pro, uh, pro-life and pro-choice argue this with science and biology. Now hear me, we're going to hear me on this little rant. Pro-life saying we have proof when the sperm penetrates the ovium, fertilizing the egg, creating the zygote which is recognized by science as a genetically distinct individual. So whether you know anything about science or not, because I don't, whether you know anything about science or not, we can at least on the bare bones agree on a few points. Bare bones. I think we'd have to at least have to admit that the fertilized egg, the zygote, whatever you want to call it at the early stage of human development, we can at least admit and agree that it's human. We can agree that it's human. See, as it's the offspring, or little one, of two humans. By the way, that, that's what fetus means in Latin, if you did not know. It means offspring, little one, or little child. Second, we can admit that it's an organism. Can we admit that? We already have bare bones level, can probably agree that it's human. So it's a human organism... Now, wouldn't that separate the organism from sperm or for a woman's egg? Because human organisms have the capacity to develop into what? You guessed it. Humans. A capacity that the tissue or cells do not have. And thirdly, again, at the most basic level, without needing to know science, if we can agree that it's human and that it's an organism versus body tissue, then can we not see that it's alive? As it takes nutrients and has its own genetic code and matures on multiple different levels. You saw it right here in Amelia's sonograms. You leave sperm alone for years, it will not grow. You take a zygote, and years time later you have a toddler. You take a zygote, and years later you have a first grader. You have a little boy pretending to be Superman. You have a girl wanting to do ballet. All of my resources claim strongly that every embryology textbook out there states the fact that a conception happens. Life happens at conception, excuse me. Now I could flood this room with secular and medical sources all stating that personhood and life start at conception. And I'm sure there are people right now ready to flood some back to me. But as much as I believe the scientific facts, because I do, for so many it won't be fair to hold science the deciding factor. There will never be an agreement for both parties when it comes to science, ever. Nadie Strauss, Nadine Strauss, and excuse me, who some of you may know, she's been a, a radical woman's activist and a pro-choice member on the side of things. She agrees with me. As she has said very publicly, there are many disagreements among science because science itself is divided, she would say. So it's not fair to hold science as the foundation because no one will agree. agree. Not that because science is inconclusive, but that the parties will never agree. We could go round and round and around. But even if that's true, hear me out. Again, and scientists argue whether it's life or not, why wouldn't we halt and err on the side of caution? Shouldn't we halt and err on the side of caution? No one in here thinking, that might be a person in the middle of the road, I shall speed up, nobody would do that. A hunter in the woods, is it a deer or a person, I guess I'll fire my rifle and find out. Nobody would do that. So with ambiguity, as an all of life, even if the scientists of both parties are divided on this, we should always err on the side of what? Caution. We always err on the side of life. But like I said, the majority of this issue at hand does not lay on the table of science. It lays on the table of life versus liberty. Life versus liberty. So we may say for the record right now, at, as Collective Church, as Casey Fritz, as one of the pastors here, hear me very clearly. We are advocates, advocates for women's liberty and for women's rights and for women to choose. If you're here and you're curious about the Christian faith or what the church is, when you hear these types of talks or messages, uh, I really hope that you don't hear that the church or the Christian faith is trying to oppress or anti-woman. Far from it. Read the Gospels and see how Jesus interacted with women. That is far from it. We're pro-choice. We're pro-choice for women to choose their spouse, their church, their careers, their home, and their relationships. But, if the unborn inside of that woman is human, or even a possible life like we said, and has personhood, then the right to privacy or the right to choose changes. I say this gently, but I say this firmly. The issue being tied to women's rights must be secondary secondary again women's rights are very important but this is a secondary to the primary message of what is the unborn so the issue of abortion is more than a women's issue it's humanity's issue and far before it's humanity's issue it's god's issue so what does the bible what does god's word stand on this we've already made it very clear that i'm a i believe in the bible i want to teach the bible well and accurate as much as possible we are a Bible-believing church, so I'm not surprising anybody here today to, by, by letting you know that, we, that we, we are pro-life as a church. And even though, as I'm speaking this to mostly Christians here today, but still be aware of this, Christians still need to be reminded of this. In fact, for what it's worth, Guttmacher reported in 2010 that 43% of women who have had an elective abortion identify themselves as Protestant evangelical Christians. That means one out of every five abortions are done by women who profess to follow Jesus and believe the Bible. Whatever that may mean, I bring it up to show that this is not just a divide between the secular or the sacred or the world and the church, but abortion touches all. So before we must answer the question, what is the unborn? Let's allow God to answer the question, what is the unborn? Psalm 139 is the passage of scripture I would like to read out of. You can follow along if you'd like. You can crack open your Bible. It might be behind me on the screen. But I don't remember. We're going to start in verse 13 of Psalm 139. Very famous scriptures on the sanctity of life. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. a science. They actually don't even say when life begins in the womb. It doesn't talk about conception or first or second or third trimester. It doesn't talk about birth. They go far before and establish something even greater. Christians, please hear this. They establish something greater. That being inherent value. Inherent value attached to any and every distinct individual at any part of the pregnancy and beyond. And again, maybe some of you are going, well, that's the Psalms. That's poetic mumbo-jumbo. Okay, well, it's in other parts of the Bible. Jeremiah 1.5, before, before, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God said. Luke 1, John the baptizer, within the womb, as the pregnant mother of Jesus came near, the baby had a reactionary movement in the womb. Luke 1, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible seems to lay out from Old Testament New that there is more than blobs or jumbled cells within each side of of, of every pregnant woman. Our view as the Christian faith is that personhood, as God has intended, comes with inherent value and worth. You come with inherent value and worth. You have value and you have worth. And God has made each individual, both small and undeveloped, to, to toddler, to the elderly, in the image of God the Imago Dei. This is a biblical doctrine that is the silver thread that sows worth to each member of the human race. It's so important to Christians that in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, God lays it out. He says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. To be made in the image of God, not in physical appearance, certainly not. To be made in the image of God, not in physical appearance, but in likeness. What does that mean exactly? It means we and the unborn babies are, are, are artists or are musicians with song. It means we and the unborn baby are creators and we're spiritual and we're relational and we're moral beings. It means we're nothing like the animals or the insects or the trees. See, we've been made, every embryo has been made, every child with Down syndrome has been made, every man and woman of all races have been made, all living and human organisms have been made with the distinguishable mark and likeness and image of God. This is why the actions and thoughts of taking a life in the Bible comes with such gravity. We must understand this. To, to, that this is a big point. To condense value and worth to, or personhood based solely off capacity of what the unborn can and cannot do is absurd. To base it solely off what it can and cannot do, and I say it again, is absurd. That makes value and worth based upon function and not nature. See, the creation of life begins at conception, but the value of life begins with the creator. Peter Singer, a, uh, he's at Princeton University. You may have heard of him. He's a massive philosopher. He argues and believes that human rights are grounded in capacities, so much so that he actually doesn't believe a newborn has personhood until 30 days after birth. He says, Human babies are not born self-aware, are capable of, of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, and hear this, the life of a newborn is less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Now hear me, that's an extreme case. But I wanted to go to that level because no one in here would snatch an infant from their nursing mother's arm. That's why even in the deepest values of the shadow of death, that being miscarry, miscarriages is so painful. No, the, the parents have never seen the child's face or held the baby's hand or heard its voice, but their worth and their value is immense. See, if value really is based off the level of dependency, would anybody take the life of an infant? Heavens, no! No! Will we say that the severely mentally disabled have no value because they're not independent? Far from it. What about those in comas who have lost their worth? Because they have now grown in the need and they need the help of others. Or they've lost capacity or consciousness. Are they now thrown away? Are they now not person? We've got to hear this. That the value value is not, not determined based upon which the circumstance on which it was conceived. A child's value is also not determined based upon which the circumstance in which it was conceived. And that is a very, very true statement for all horrific and tragic cases of somebody getting pregnant, including rape or incest or anything in between. What about size? What about size? Because a person is small, because a person is small, the size of a raisin. Are they not required to receive equality as a person? I'm bigger than my wife, is she less equal to me? Don't tell that to Horton. It's not a pro-life book by any means, but Dr. Seuss, Horton here's a hue, has some very sweet, childlike exhorting to us all. This is what it says. I've got to protect them, Horton realizes. I'm bigger than they, he please, Please don't harm all my little folks who have as much right to live as us bigger folks. And you guys probably know the very famous line, a person's a person no matter how small. What's irreplaceable, no matter the location or the environment of the child, in the womb or outside of the womb. The dependency of the unborn. The size of the unborn. Or the level of development of the unborn. None of it determines their value or lack of it. They're valuable to this world, to the human race, and more than anything to God. If you believe in the image of God, hear me clearly. If you believe in the image of God, you are opposed to abortion. You have to be. There's no way around it. And I say again gently but firmly, there are no exceptions. I hope we never make light of this collective church, the issue of abortion. Because the moment we make light of this is the moment we make light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because as heavy as this truth is of our generation, and as great as a sin, it is. And we residents of Los Angeles, we as people hate that word, sin. But it is our reality. It is our fallen nature. That we have chosen our ways before our creator's ways. That we are a nation that has chosen convenience to the point of others' termination. Now hear me. As great of a sin as it is, it it, it pales. As great as a sin it is, it pales in comparison to how great his grace is. To make light of an abortion is to make light of the one who's come to save us out of abortions. Now, as we start to recognize that the unborn are the unwanted, hearing that, that close to 60 million are unwanted within our time, within our nation, it's easy to be appalled. Mm. 60 million, it's easy for us to have anger. But may we never forget that those precious living beings are wanted by God. And hear this their mothers, their fathers who have aborted those children, the truth that truth is for you as well. You as a child of God are not unwanted. You are very, very, very wanted. Before, during, and after an abortion. Before, during, and after an abortion, God wants you. God is not pleased with the taking of a life, especially the defenseless, but the wrath to come to each and every one of us as current or as once rebels and enemies and haters of God was interjected and hijacked by Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus exchanges. This is what's called in the theological world as the great exchange, the double imputation. Where Jesus on the cross of Calvary exchanges all of our sin with all of his righteousness. But what else is exchanged? We have wrath for mercy and guilt for joy and shame with healing. We have a God who is a good, good father who sent his only son Jesus so that if any one of us have had an abortion or not could come to him and receive life and life more abundant. The spirit of God has more for you. The gospel of John says this and it's beautiful. It says the true light, that being Jesus Christ, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and was the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in the name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. There is no unwanted for God, with God, for those who believe in Jesus. Hear me. Have we not yet fully realized, do we not see and know how there is nothing you can do that I can do that would separate us from the love of God? There is nothing you can do or I could do there might be people even right now, as I just said that point, whispering to themselves, going, mm, you have no idea what I've done. And my answer to you would be, then you have no idea what he can do. It might be people whispering in their hearts again, saying, you have no idea how bad of a person I am. And to that I would say, then you have no idea of how good of a God he is. Maybe this will inspire you. She said the words, It was so hard for me to conceive that the Lord had forgiven me, especially after so many children had been killed. But he has forgiven me and restored me. And gradually I have learned to trust his word more than my own feelings. These are the words of Norma McCorvey. If you don't know who that is, she is a woman who in 1973 was told by her friends to lie and to tell the world that she had been raped in order to convince the court that she could have an abortion. You may know her by her other name, which is Jane Rowe. Her single lie, her sin, launched, like I said, the abortions we have today, resulting in 50 To 60 million abortions. A single lie. We can only assume that her guilt. Very strong. We can only assume her shame. Unbelievably palpable. Her sadness. Very real. But God. But God. But God. Interjected. Later in an abortion clinic. She was rescued from guilt. And from that sin, because of the love of Jesus Christ. Is it fair to say that her past action has resulted in millions of lives murdered? But then we compare that to the actions of Jesus where we have millions of lives saved. See, God loves, God's love scrubs us in every stain that we have. He scrubs it away and by the wondrous power of the Spirit of God, she, Jane Rowe, was made into a new creation. She is our sister who we love. Allow this exhortation and encouragement again for us. There is nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God. And for those here who don't know Jesus, don't believe Jesus, don't confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, today is the day. Hope is to be found in Jesus. Believe on Him. Confess with your mouth that you need a rescuer, that you need a Savior. And allow God to make you not better, not stronger, not nicer, but new. See, so just like Norma McCarvey, who was once Jane Roe. So now what? Now what? We all bummed out, broken, furious. What do we do now? Inspired. What do we do now? What do we do as a church? How does this fit into our vision and our mission? If we are a community on the west side seeking to reach and teach and equip others to follow Jesus, how do we reach and teach? I want to read this unbelievably intense and challenging quote, and hopefully this stirs us up. You're, you're probably not going to like it. I'm having a hard time liking it, but hear the point. It's from Greg Cunningham. He says, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And that's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. So costly that the large number of people who save them are pro-life, pro-life are not lifting a finger to stop the killing. And those that do lift a finger do just enough to solve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. See, that quote, gnarly as it is, is a call to engage it's a calling to engage beyond our comfort level. And that's really my first point. I want to get super practical for just give you two minutes. Super practical for two minutes. Be engaged, Christian. Write this stuff down if you need to. Let us be engaged, all of us, in some way, some shape, some form. We should be mindful of doing our part to help the helpless. Jesus stories, uh, gave a story and modeled about the devastation of when no one helps, even when Christians don't help those who are defensive. Defenseless. See God and Jesus says go out of your way. He said, go and do likewise in the Good Samaritan, Samaritan parable. Two, be educated. I didn't cover a quarter of how big this issue is. Not even a quarter of it. Get the right resources. Come ask me. But be educated. Be aware. Be prayerful. Another thing I was rocked by this week. I haven't been actively praying for this. We need to be in regular routine of praying for this hurricane-sized issue because we believe in the power of prayer. May we add this to our daily lives. Next, be involved. Outside right now is Clara's Health. Clara's Health. Lorenzo already hit on it. The West Side Side Pregnancy Center here on the West Side. That was redundant. They need volunteers. They need volunteers. They need leaders for their post-abortion Bible studies. Hear this. They need us. They need you, and they need you, and they need you, and they need me. Can I just encourage all of us? Lorenzo gave you an invitation to stop on by. I'm go and talk to Stacy out there and say, how can I get involved? Signed up, take some literature, and please do this. Please go out there and just say, thank you, Stacy. She's one of the few who are making a difference. Please, please bombard her in a good way. Couple more, be open. This is part of a much bigger conversation, but hear me, this needs to be said. If it's many people who are open to adoption or foster care that were open to picketing and protesting, our foster and adoption would be a juggernaut. This is a serious option for all families that should consider adoption and fostering. And it's my wife and I have to consider it. We have to. Be compassionate. If you're approached tonight or sometime this week with somebody saying, I've had an abortion. If you're approached by a guy in a discipleship group saying, I've paid or pushed for an abortion. I beg of you, with every fiber of my being, show them the love of God. Watch out for some weird shock value on your face. And don't put some weird freaking stigma on their forehead. Shunned. Nope. Nope, I do not want us to be that type of church or that type of community. You remind them there's no condemnation. You remind them and push them towards gospel community. You remind them that you are just as broken. See, what good is it to hear people, to be there for people, and believe these hurting people are made in the image of God, and then to curse them or shame them? See, just as the Bible verse says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power and, the spirit of, excuse, and by the Spirit of God. Please lead them towards community. Be a faithful presence and open your, open your home to anybody struggling with the thought of or the past of abortion. This is the type of church, this is the type of people we should strive and make an effort to be. And wouldn't so much of the West Side just stare in confusion as we stood up for the marginal? Wouldn't so many people and our, you know, in our, our coworkers or our classmates despise us just for caring and the, for caring and trying to love the helpless little unborn babies? Wouldn't our neighbors find so many of us peculiar, peculiar, as we cared for the weak with no exception of return or transaction? I end with this, let's be that kind of community, let's be that kind of people, let's be that kind of church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we realize right now the gravity of this issue. If we don't, help us to realize it. If even somehow still in our heart it's made light or we are not fully understanding it, if anything I said of, has added confusion, God, I pray that you'd bring clarity. I pray that you'd bring awareness. And I pray that you'd bring weight to our conviction. A conviction to, to be engaged. A conviction to be prayerful. A conviction to be open. Lord, I pray that this would not be something that's just so, again, overgeneralized. Generalized, that we think, oh yes, the community should do something. Westside Pregnancy Clinic should do something. May we start right now. Lord, what do you have for me? What do you have for me to do? What do you, how, how do you have me to be involved? Lord, what do you have for us as a church? So something we do within each and every one of our talks and our time of prayer as we're closing is we just give it a minute to slow down and reflect. Because we believe the Spirit of God does the work, because we believe the Word of God is very much alive, and can transcend whatever some preacher may miss or not say or say, that if the Spirit of God was just pricking your heart tonight or if you heard something that you need to reflect on in this moment, we've carved out some space just for you to pray, to ask questions between you and God. And if you've never said a prayer before, I encourage you right now, talk to God. You do this in the silence of your heart. Ask questions, be there, ask for God to speak to you. Let's do that now.